Hi, welcome to the Kelson reading series. We're doing chapter four today. The static aspect of law is the name of the chapter. So this is quite a meaty chapter and immediately from the title we can hear the static aspect. The next chapter, chapter five, is called the dynamic aspect of law. So Kelson makes this distinction between static and dynamic. We'll talk more about dynamic in the next video. The static aspect is, Kelson also calls this law at rest, not moving. What this focuses on is how human behavior creates and affects norms. Whereas the dynamic aspect is the opposite way, how norms affect human behavior. Kelson makes some very big, very important, and I think some quite surprising points in this chapter. And let's dig into them. So we already know that law is a normative order that states when coercion should be applied. And in the beginning of this chapter, Kelson breaks down like kind of branching distinctions, different types of coercion. The first distinction he makes is between sanctions and other types of coercion. Sanction mainly means imprisonment. Other coercion means, for example, internment, destruction of property. Those are the examples he gives. They are ones that are not linked to the acts of a specific person. Maybe some of the lockdowns that we saw during COVID can be seen as this second type. But sanctions themselves also branch out. So under sanctions, we can have direct punishment or civil sanctions. So while civil sanctions or civil executions are aimed perhaps more at social order, punishment directly relating to a, a person, not, his, not assets or something more general, this kind of punishment, Kelson also says, Apart from retribution, their function is not entirely clear. So I think this is already a kind of an important political uh, statement that he makes. You know, this idea that imprisonment, for example, can have other reasons behind it, like we hear, like rehabilitation or something like that. Kelson doesn't buy that. He says it seems that most coercion that goes into sanction that goes into punishment is clearly mostly there just for revenge the important point he raises also in terms of sanction is that sanctions come into play not as a negation of law he says that we commonly say someone is being punished because they broke the law he says this is just a habit of speech the law cannot be broken it is exactly when the law is broken that the law actually comes into play. The law exists before the delict. And the delict doesn't break it. The delict activates it. He then moves on to talk about obligations, legal obligations, and says a few very interesting things regarding this. He says an obligation is just the opposite expression of a norm that already exists, right? So the norm says well, you should do A, and now you have an obligation to do A. Because it's Kelson, he makes a point expressly to say that this is not 
the same as the Kantian moral obligation. It's not Kantian and it's not moral. It's a purely legal obligation. Because, importantly, the obligation that exists is not for the legal subject to act in a certain way. The obligation is that if he does not act in a way, the normative aspect of the law, the ought to coerce, the ought to punishment, is activated. That is where the obligation lies. The obligation is, in a certain sense, on the law, not on the acting subject. He only has the potential to activate the law's normative obligation. He's not strictly under an, any obligation himself. He is, in fact, a free person. He can do what he wants. It is through his freedom that the law is activated or not. So we can never say that a person should do something legally. We can only say a person can do whatever they want, but if they do X, the law ought to respond in this way. And I think the first question that should come up with us when we talk about obligations first here, right, is necessarily then what about rights? We talk about legal rights um, way more than we do about obligations. So what does this understanding of obligations imply for legal rights? And Carlson says that we should not think of rights as something that we possess but that it's rather a reflection of the obligations that others have toward us, right? So we shouldn't think of rights as something that is inherent to us, that we possess, but rather that it's a reflection of the obligations that surround us and not the obligation of other people, but the obligation of the law towards the behavior of people towards us. So, for example, today we often discuss or debate the potential for animals or natural phenomena, such as the Amazon, to be the bearer of rights. So, for Carlson, this would not be possible. Any rights that an animal or a forest can have is only a different way of saying what it really is, which is the law's obligation to punish those who act towards those animals or those forests in a certain way. So he gets rid of this problem of legal subjects and objects because even a human being who has rights is not a subject, he's an object. So, humans are objects, animals are objects, forests are objects, in terms of the obligations of the law to punish those that harm those objects. So, I think this has a bit of transformative potential, right? Because what Carlson already does here is put human rights and animal rights and the rights of nature on a theoretically 
equal platform, right? We don't have to make any great imaginative leap to apply the same rights to a human object or a so-called natural object. I'm saying so-called because, of course, humans are also natural. And for this reason, he also says expressly that the jus in personam and the jus ad rem distinction between humans and objects is a false one, legally, theoretically speaking. Any right, whether it be in a thing or a person, again, is just the reflection of a series of obligations. And here, Carlson's socialist sympathies come out. He says that this distinction between persons and objects, property, was made in the first place in order to protect a regime of private property. And that stressing a property holder's rights over his property rather than focusing, as he does, on the obligations of others to respect that property is an ideological move to make private property seem natural. So we have a powerful critique of private property from Kalsenia. He clearly says that it's a conscious ideological move made contingently in legal history or political history. He also takes it further to political rights in general and he defines political rights as the right of people to have a say or an influence on the state and the legal order, the power of people to change that. And mainly this happens by instituting procedures through which laws can be validly amended or changed. And that the purpose of a constitution and a bill of rights is merely, if we can say merely, but is there only to make the amendment of those rights, obligations, procedurally more difficult. It doesn't make it impossible. We all know constitutions can be amended. So that's the purpose of enshrining something in the constitution, despite the language that says, perhaps in some constitutions, that this is eternal and the rights of man, natural, inborn rights. It's mainly a procedural matter, making the procedure tighter. Because of this view of rights and obligations, Kelson also gets rid of the distinction between between a person's capacity to act and legal capacity. So capacity to act, think of the things, the acts that a person can do to commit a crime and then legal capacity, entering into a contract or getting married, something like that. And we can think of several examples where a person would have one of those categories at their disposal, but not the other. It also means that obligations and legal relations 
such as a contract or a marriage is not from a legal perspective it's not a relationship between two persons but a relationship between two reciprocal norms this is all that the legal system can see if i break my contract or i follow the contract i'm acting in accordance to a norm that we set up i'm not doing anything to the other contracting party i think this closed system autopoetic view is quite interesting he says that you know we think of this as social relations and from another point of observation surely they are but from the legal system's perspective what the legal system sees is a relation between norms not it's not a social reality it's a legal reality that we're dealing with or that the law deals with it is an entire world encapsulated and created and communicated by the law about the law to the law and the legal subject is therefore only those who are able to use general norms to create personal norms for them or spe- specific norms for them such as a contract and who can activate sanctions by failing to fulfill their obligations and for the law this is all a person is the bearer of obligations and someone who can create more obligations kelson says that it's a distinctly ideological move to put the person outside or even above the legal system through talking of rights because what does that do he comes back to the point of private property that you are a person above the law who has rights property rights that this is natural transcendental outside of the law outside of time outside of society it's not it's all inside of society it's an ideological move rights it's only obligations he says that even the person is not a natural thing but is something created by law a person is only this kind of nexus this bundle of obligations that is what a person is it's an entirely socially constructed concept from the perspective of the legal system so kelson concludes this chapter by saying that the pure theory of law is a theory of objective law of legal objects not of legal subjects the idea of legal subjects is something that comes from roman law but does not belong in a modern theory the pure theory looks only at legal obligations within their totality as a system interestingly for later he says that law is an organism which means it's an order it's a structure which deals with problems of order and structure legal problems are problems of order not of ethics not of morality 
So that wraps us up for chapter four, the static aspect of law. And in two weeks, we'll have chapter five, the dynamic aspect of law. Until then, have a good time.